Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Rafe Hadel Manku. We're hearing a lot today about how politics is broken in Britain, and indeed how the British nation might be broken. Is this due to Brexit? Were the roots laid much earlier? Joining me today to discuss this, we have four experts on all matters Brexit. Dr. Tim Stanley is an historian and a leader writer for The Telegraph and a regular contributor to CNN. Uh, he also writes for The Spectator, amongst many other publications, and amongst his um, broad portfolio of TV appearances and on the radio, he's appeared on The Moral Maze on Radio 4 and Question Time on BBC. Madeleine Grant was a parliamentary researcher, then worked for the Institute for Economic Affairs and is now a comments editor for The Telegraph and she appears regularly on Politics Live and has also appeared on Any Questions on BBC Radio 4. Tom Harwood is a journalist for the award-winning Guido Fawkes website, a political and investigative journalism website. Uh, he also writes for The Spectator and Conservative Home and amongst many appearances on BBC, Sky and ITV, he is also the youngest ever person to have appeared on Question Time. David Oldroyd Bolt is a historian and a musician who once wrote for The Times Diary and now writes for The Telegraph and The Spectator uh, and The Catholic Herald and indeed his uh, cover story for The Spectator was the most viewed of all time in 2017. They are all Brexiteer experts and um, are looking forward to discussing our topic for today, which is, is Brexit broken? Tim, if I can start with you. Mm -hmm. Is Brexit broken, the title of our show, or has it started perhaps slightly earlier? Has Brexit actually ripped the veil off of uh, Britain and shown us underneath scars and cracks and breaks that happened much earlier? Depending on, point, on your point of view, the crisis could either be Brexit itself or the failure to deliver Brexit. That's the tension. So those on the left would say that Brexit itself is the product of lies and a failure of leadership by the Conservatives. This is their mess and we're now stuck in it. The Brexit point of view, which is my point of view, is actually the referendum was a perfectly reasonable question on a perfectly reasonable idea that you might wish to leave the EU. And then have the real crisis comes from having asked that question, having been given an answer, then refusing or failing to deliver. So that's the tension. Is the, is the crisis Brexit itself or is the crisis how long it's taken to get it done? Madeline, is Brexit broken? Well, I think that what Brexit has done is it has performed a kind of stress testing on various of our institutions. And so one by one, as they've been asked to deal with this big constitutional change, uh, they've been basically, you know, put up to, uh, they've had their feet held to the fire and actually the majority have been found wanting. We begin to realise just how much in our system relies on uh, people's own discretion. For example, the position of Speaker of the House of Commons relies on people obeying traditions as opposed to set rules. And it's, and it's also, I think, been the failure of a very large part of the kind of the media bubble, the political class, the kind of the intellectual chattering classes. And it's revealed, it's removed the veil from a great deal of contempt that I'm not sure we realised was simmering away. I think we saw, we saw signs of that snobbery and distaste for ordinary people, but I think Brexit has really exposed a nastiness at the heart of the elite. Yes, Tom, expand on that. What do you think the revelations we've had about our elite institutions and our parliamentarians have shown us about them? 
Well, a lot of the rumblings behind Brexit from the beginning were this was this in incredible tension between the people and the politicians. We saw it expressed during the expenses crisis. It was a major theme of the AV referendum and, of course, a huge theme of the uh, EU referendum where you had just about every expert, the vast majority of the political parties, the politicians, all the people that hold those positions of power having one view and the people roundly saying shove off to them. Um, but I think that there's something quite different in what we've experienced in the last two years and the general question of Brexit. This um, tension that we've seen in terms of Parliament not wanting to enact the result of the referendum is very much a response to the 2017 election and that sort of disassociation that people had. It sort of shattered that idea that I think most parliamentar parliamentarians held uh, following the referendum result that it should be delivered. They had a bit of a grounding, a bit of a shock. I think that totally dissipated after Theresa May failed to win that election. Now, David, looking at things from a cultural perspective, which is your great area of expertise, it's no surprise to know that Remainers dominate the cultural fields and the arts. Um, what impact do you think the Remainers have had on cultural institutions since 2016? And particularly, what impact have they had on Brexit, um, leave artists, musicians, etc.? The impact that the Remain camp has had on cultural institutions goes much, much farther back. They've had a, an hegemony over cultural institutions since at least the Blair government, but probably really uh, since the 1970s. And this expresses itself in a cultural fissure through the nation between those who feel themselves to have no allegiance nationally to be part of a supranational class of educated cultivated cultural elites and you see this through their flexibility of working and living they rarely feel that they're happy wherever they are as long as they're with their people and the contrast is with those who feel the sense of what Roger Scruton has often described as an oikos a place and their rootedness they have no buy-in to cultural institutions in this country anymore they are those who are bidden to attend and to whom accessibility schemes are supposedly directed, but who in fact feel themselves at complete distance from it. And all that has happened, I think, since 2016 is that that gulf has widened and widened and widened to the point that, as Maddie says, there is now an utter contempt between those controlling cultural institutions, directing the cultural life in the, of the nation, and the, those to whom it is supposedly directed. Um, I can see no remedy for this that does not entail a wholesale cleaning of the organs tables. You have to get rid of the people running these institutions who have that mindset if those institutions are ever to change, because institutions take their character from the leaders. And really, it's, it's a great tragedy, actually, of Brexit that what could have been a healing exercise has, in fact, only solidified divisions. Well, you raise an interesting point as to when the road to Brexit started. And, of course, there are those who believe it started in 1997 with the election of yeah. Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. And there's the famous uh, Gramsci theory. I'd like to know how, what, what you think about that, how much veracity you hold to it which in a nutshell states that uh, the plan was to have a long march through the institutions. Gramsci was a communist who didn't believe in the economic models of, of communism. And um, Peter Hitchens eloquently uh, put this case forward on an, an appearance on our sister show. So what you're saying is, and um, really that what we've had under Blair was a far more radical change than even Corbyn has envisaged in that uh, a silent revolution took place in our institutions the buildings remain the same, and people walk around thinking nothing's changed just because there are no red flags on the rooftops, but the people that built those buildings and inhabited them have vanished and have been replaced by other people. What do we think about that? Accident, <coughs> conspiracy, or just 
but they've not been replaced by Marxists. One, one problem I have with the conservative analysis, the Gramscian idea of cultural Marxism has been this slow takeover through cultural institutions, particularly higher education, is that the victors are not Marxists. They are by and large liberals, metropolitan liberals, uh, whose views correspond very much with the economic and social consensus post the Cold War. Essentially, they, they take almost the Fukuyama point that history has ended. Uh, the great collective endeavors, the utopian endeavors of socialism and Marxism are over now. And it's all about the individual and, and the atomized individual aspiring to have liberty over their own life. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that. And I think it's very important. Uh, there is a crisis legitimacy, but it's, it's important to remember that leaving the EU is really not that controversial an mm. idea. It's a very straightforward, simple idea. And the people only said they wanted to do it because they were asked. Had they not been asked, this is why my point at the beginning is where does the crisis come? Is it the asking in the referendum or is it the failure to deliver? Is the crisis actually that the establishment thought we didn't know what to do about the EU, so we're going to ask people? And then the people when asked said, fine, we want to do it. But it's really not that controversial a question. The failure to then deliver it goes back to this 1997 point about the, the slow decline in faith in democratic institutions. Labour's problem post the end of the Cold War is it abandons socialism, it abandons the notions of social solidarity and economic redistribution. It becomes a liberal party and it loses touch with its working class base, which is why you see a decline in turnout in elections. It's why you see rebellions like the famous Blinau Gwent by-election, why you see the rise of the BNP, the rise of UKIP in working class heartlands. It's because Labour has abandoned that space in politics. And that's what's happening now is the left is struggling to refill it again with Corbyn, but it's really not succeeding. Um, so I, I see all of this as, as really a, a fallout of 1989. It's not just about Brexit, because I think Brexit's a perfect, I can keep saying, it's a perfectly reasonable question. It's not that controversial. It, it, it's about the, the gulf between what politicians assume everyone wants and actually what they're discovering everyone wants. And it turns out that a lot of what people want is actually a return to collective, uh, collectivist social solidarity which is not reflected really, has not been reflected for a very long time uh, in the elites in this country. We had Peter Oban's terrific book, uh, The Triumph of the Political Class, that showed basically how under Tony Blair and later under Cameron uh, and Brown, um, we saw basically the creation of spads and others who entered politics straight through university, never having any experience of life outside the Westminster bubble. And that, that basically sh created the separation, the division between nation and politics. What do we think about the influence of that? I think there's, there is a lot of truth to that. It also explains the, uh, the love of the EU to an extent because the EU offers a further avenue for that kind of uh, sort of cosy club, the, uh, the patronage. It is often the EU for a long time has acted as a kind of um, retirement home for politicians from national states that have either failed to be elected in those countries or they've had their, they've done their time in mainstream politics. And it also offers um, a kind of melting pot where people who are, have the, the sort of European elite have far more in common with each other than they do with the average citizen of any of their countries can kind of come together and set policy in such a way that continues that status quo. And I can totally see why so many people would find it so attractive as someone who was a student of politics. You sort of see these grand designs. You, you go to Brussels and you see the enormous buildings, the sort of grandeur of the whole place, and it can be quite attractive. It can be sucked in. I totally see why Tony Blair wanted to be president of Europe. It's, a, it's an attractive system to believe that you can um, organise society and structure it from the centre. 
And it's sort of that ideology that I think is more pervasive than anything else in the current um, setup of our political elites, sort of that that planning from the centre that they can believe they can uh, deliver society from the desks in Whitehall. And I think one of the biggest things about the referendum vote that we haven't touched on yet is taking back control isn't just to take it back and leave it with elites in Westminster. It's about bringing it back to individuals and having people having more control over their own lives, yeah. which has steadily slid away from them over the decades and, and rested with people who very few ha feel they have any accountability whatsoever. And the fallacy that sovereignty means parliamentary sovereignty alone, that was never an argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's national sovereignty, yeah. the, the sovereign has sovereignty. And most importantly, individual sovereignty. And individual, individual yeah. sovereignty. Could I just return to your earlier point that the idea of the rise of the political class somehow began in the 1990s? It's an historical fallacy. The phrase, Bob's your uncle, comes from the fact that Arthur Balfour was given patronage in government by his uncle, Robert, third Marquess of Salisbury. The idea that historically people have not risen through the structures of, say, Oxford or Cambridge, then been parliamentary private secretaries, and then become uh, ministers and then later cabinet ministers and prime ministers is, is simply historical bunkum. Yes, but and I and suppose yeah, at least yeah. it's the fact that that it's often conducted by so-called progressives who think of themselves as generally anathema to that kind of patronage in their day-to-day -day lives, but are of course massive recipients of it. Mm. When yes. there, there are those There's who a hypocrisy yeah. about I, I, it. You're absolutely right, David. It, it's just that the current class doing it have views we don't agree with. <laughs> that's, our, that's our real objection here. But I, I'm totally honest about that. There, there's always power in society and there's always a bureaucratic elite which enforces it and it always replicates what it assumes is the cultural consensus and of its And the curious time. thing over the past 20 years has been that conservative governments have not done what traditionally happens when governments replace one of another stripe, which is to put their own people in power. Mm. Yes. Following Blair and Brown, the conservatives under, well fine it was a coalition, but the Cameron coalition and then government did not start in when, for instance, Quango chairmanships came up, putting their own people in place, or when the chairman of the Royal Opera House or any cultural institution, when that became vacant, didn't put their people there. This is what Blair did so effectively. He created a class, a, a bureaucratic class, but also a cultural class of those who made themselves indispensable and brought their people up behind them. So yes, there is a, a new mm. class there, yes. uh, a class of cultural administrators that conservatives have simply not felt themselves culturally powerful enough to replace. Yeah. Mm. Although, in fairness, Blair had the political space to do so. Yeah. When you've yeah. got a socking majority and you feel like the country's behind you, you sort of have the yeah. audaciousness to, to pursue avenues like that. But um, in reality, there's only been a conservative majority government for two of the last 20 odd years, more than 20 years. Uh, so it's understandable why there hasn't been that, um, that sort of um, embedding of yeah. conservative thought in institutions. And I think it can also be difficult for conservatives because very often they're made to feel pariahs when they enter these sorts of places, the ivory towers and the academies and so on. Uh, their, their views are not as popular and you get a lot of shy Tories in, in these sorts mm. of institutions. Um, and there's a real difference between being in power, obviously that gives you some confidence, but you, it doesn't have the kind of um, brazen confidence that the liberal elite have that sense of absolute justice and, and mor morality being on their side. Well, it is a moral certainty of the liberal elite that's, yeah. the, that's the difference between the mindsets. A conservative believes that his beliefs are open to question and often open to error. A liberal, I think, of the sort we're talking about, really has a sense of ethical rectitude that mm. is impossible to break. Yes. Yeah. And the Conservative places a great emphasis upon the private sphere and the family, so they're less likely to go into public organisations because yeah. they're just biased against them by instinct. Mm. But certainly, if Blair was the person who introduced this new meritocratic political class, the Labour Party prior to that had characters who certainly were very much part of the real world, and Dennis mm. Healy, you know, on the beaches you know, in the Second World War, 
great involvement in, in, in the labour movement and so forth, and they of course were expunged until re recently, and so they do have this disconnect where people feel much more at home in London and Islington than they would be doing Although we shouldn't Doncaster. fall into this trap of saying that the labour movement has been representative of workers historically. No. Um, one of the big arguments, obviously, of Thatcherism and democratising the union movement was that, I mean, so many of those unions had a considerable proportion of, of membership that voted Conservative, mm -hmm. and yet yeah. their leadership simply would not reflect their views, and in many ways it was a similar sort of disassociation within the, that union movement between the people who sort of are the workers being represented and their representatives who were fighting for something very different. Yeah. Well, Tom, leave it, leaving the institutions aside for a moment, what do you think Brexit has done to the nation as a whole? We're now arguably more divided than any time since the Civil War. Mm. Our constitution is, is in tatters. What do you think the effect is now on the British people, and where do we go from here? Interestingly, I don't think it's Brexit that's done that. Uh, polls were taken immediately after the referendum where you had 85% of people thinking that the results, whether they agreed with it or not, should be implemented. What we've had through failure of leadership at the top and stasis in Parliament is a steady um, ebbing of that consensus that did once exist. And there was a sort of uh, uh, sense of, of elites, politicians and people that okay, we might not like this, but we're going to go along with it, to coin a phrase. Um, and I think more than anything else, as I said earlier, that election result totally disassociated that, um, that idea, that consensus. And it was only after that that campaigning organisations like People's Vote sprang up. It's very mm. easy to forget because we've had so much politics crammed into such a small space of time in the last 12 months or so. This was an organisation that cropped up last summer, more than two years after the referendum. And suddenly the, the sands of politics have changed so much in that. The, the position of the Labour Party has changed from leaving the single market in the customs union to just leaving the single market to perhaps having a second referendum but without Remain on the ballot paper to now having a second referendum with Remain and another form of Remain on the ballot paper. That seismic shift has occurred in such a small period of time and it's all been enabled by that hung parliament. I'm going to say that I think Britain's always been broken in, in, the, in, the, in the sense by which you define broken and the exception really was that 89 to about 2015 period in which there appeared to be a consensus around neoliberalism. But the reality is that I, I don't think today's politics could be said to be more broken than those of the early 80s, the minor strike, uh, or those of Suez or those of the 1830s. Uh, there have always been tensions and there's always been a, a big debate over what defines Britishness and what exactly the consensus is. And very often the so-called consensus is the consensus of those power elites, uh, which at certain points enjoys, a, enjoys a, a strong anchoring in society, but at other times it becomes broken, that anchor becomes broken, and then suddenly there's a huge fight over what the new consensus should be. Uh, all of which re-emphasizes that Brexit, I feel, I feel like a broken clock, but it shouldn't be that controversial. Mm. It's just that it's come along at this moment of, of this crisis in democratic legitimacy. Mm. Perhaps a key difference between now and previous generations, I think previous generations would have looked at the result of the referendum and said, right, we've got to do it. What's interesting about this particular generation is there is a group of people who refuse to let go, refuse to move on. If you take 1945, uh, Labour's victory, the Conservatives are changed as a party within six years. And they're suddenly pro-nationalisation, pro-NHS and pro-tax and spend because they realise the country has changed. By contrast, in 2017 to, 2016 to 19, there's a reluctance of the establishment to change. 
They're fighting. They refuse to let go. And many of them seem to genuinely believe that unless they stop this project, uh, the Britain that they believe is the consensus Britain will be destroyed. I'm always, I'm always astonished by how, how quickly this phrase has switched from taking back control and give me back my country and all that sort of language has gone from being the leavers phrase <laughs> to the remainers phrase. Mm. They're now yeah. saying quite legitimacy, where did my country go to? Uh, so that, for them, it's, it's almost life and death struggle. I think that's the difference is the political rhetoric. But I, I don't think we should pretend that this is any more divisive than the early 80s. And, and to pick up on that, it's so interesting how so often remainers will reference the Olympics in 2012 as if this was yeah. a harmonious society. Most opinion polls in 2012 showed that most people in this country wanted to leave the EU. Right. It's just they didn't have an opportunity to express that. There were riots on the streets of London. Uh, the country was on fire. And yet, because there was this political consensus, mm. uh, exactly as you say, everything was assumed to be fine when it very much wasn't underneath that. And how shallow to think that a good show <laughs> was the bellwether for the country. But also how intrinsically British, yeah. <laughs> really. Putting on appearances, keeping up a good face in the spirit of adversity, or rather despite adversity, is, is the most English thing to do. Yes. Well, British, but specifically English thing to do in the face of, of, of great uncertainty. But I think there's a point that you were alluding to but didn't quite make. There is a refusal on the part of the Remainers to learn and to understand. Mm. They simply will not bring themselves to understand why this happened. Yes. You referred to 1945 and the change to 1951 and the Tory party. That's because they realised they had to understand what had happened in order to come up with any sort of coherent opposition or even to move on from it. And I'm afraid what's happened is a sort of a, it's a devil's circle mm. uh, in the remain mindset of, well, this is wrong, but this is wrong to us and we are right, so we're not going to learn from this. We're simply going to keep telling people that they are wrong until they come around to our point of view. It's yeah. absolutely intractable. I would describe it actually as a kind of almost radicalization that's taken place amongst that particular coterie of society. You know, it, a few years ago, it would have been considered the height of eccentricity for anyone to own an EU flag, much less fly it on their window. <laughs> Did anyone own an EU flag before 2016? I mean, someone's made a fortune out of selling these things to all the, the people who stand outside Parliament each day. Uh, but I think that what's happened really is that people have were so blindsided by the result. They're so uh, dis disgusted, but mostly shocked by, by, by what happened, because essentially they felt that their consensus, they were essentially on the front foot for a long time, culturally and politically. And so to have the rug pulled out from under your feet has sparked something of an identity crisis. And this actually highly illusory, uh, not real, but sort of European identity has sprung up in a number of years. And that's that these are the people who tweet with F FBP or whatever it is, and wear EU flags and uh, talk, speak of themselves as, you know, speaking with as though we, we live in very much a kind of fallen world now. Yeah. Uh, I want my country back, but precisely the kind of declinist rhetoric that you would normally have associated with some uh, conservative man who's looking back to the 1950s with, with, with sadness, you know, that it's, that it's gone. Well, there's no coincidence there. The, those, I think, who have the most buy-in to the European project are, for the most part, the scions of the old imperial class, the governing class. Yes. They're highly educated, often from the families that were district governors running parts of the empire. When the empire went after Suez and after the Commonwealth, they simply shifted sideways. And they've realized now that their, again, cultural hegemony is coming to an end. That their 200 years or more of absolute domination of the instruments and hierarchies of governments has finished. And they do not know how to respond to this. It's a form of institutional post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. Yes. It's, it's deeply, it's deeply it, it is built in a, in a sense of patrician snobbery. I saw one placard at one of these protests that was bragging about how 
her uh, lady was bragging about her she'd managed to spell her placard correctly mm. you know the implication being that Brexiteers <laughs> are just, yes. just too thick and yes. they'd be like I mean, your, Olymp your Olympics reference I always thought was quite good for Brexit because if you remember the media in this country constantly like to downplay and denigrate and deprecate and all through the lead up to the Olympics they were saying it's going to be a disaster mm. turned out to be a huge triumph and I was hoping vainly that Brexit was going to be a similar thing poo poo it and then at the 11th hour prove it to be a great success it hasn't quite turned out that way unfortunately yes but it might yet it might yet but um, yeah. really what you're talking about now is something which is affecting Boris Johnson as you know that he's now trying to realign with the neighbor with the Labour North Blue Labour yeah and um, certainly his economic policies um, are not Tory in any essence they're much more Labour than Tory in terms of his spending plans uh, in an attempt to do away with the long-term damage some would say that Thatcher had implemented in, in the North through her policies uh, and reverse that which the left have always capitalized on as the, the demon the Tory party but what do you think then about this coming general election will it be uh, an election that can offer some sort of a fix Stephen Davies and um, Dr Matthew Goodwin have advanced the idea that we're undergoing one of the most major political realignments which will see mm. people dividing up not along class lines or economic ideology but, but upon culture and values and so you'll have mm. the Brexit party and the Tory right and blue labor on one side and you'll have labor centrists alleged centrists um Tokomuna being one of the mm. former post poster boys and Blair as well along with it along with the Lib Dems do we think that's now going to be the new divide well the trouble is that they currently lack a viable political home given mm. that the Labour Party has been taken over by m proper Marxists some un reconstructed Marxists and as you pointed out the Conservative Party is going in a more you might you know you might say more well, it's going in the direction of blue labour. I think it, there is a danger that it's making um, something of a mistake because, of course, Margaret Thatcher managed to win over the working classes in huge numbers, particularly in 1983. And she did that not by offering what I think are quite patronising bribes, essentially, saying the way to win over Workington Man, as he's patronisingly referred to by some think tank, you know, the way to win him over is just to give him more stuff. Um, but actually, Workington Man um, wants very much the same things that, that people have always wanted, the chance to you know, get on in life. Uh, they want potentially a, a hand up rather than a hand out. Um, and I think it might well pay off in this election because they are up against such a weak opposition. But in general, I think the Conservatives would do better to you know, re-engage with that aspirational message that scored them three uh, landslide victories during the 1980s and 70s. I, we, we all are most people would agree that this election is, is somewhat about culture, but no one's quite worked out yet how economic policy ties into culture. And when it comes to Brexit, there is one part of the Tory mind which is inclined to say that it's all about, as we were saying, the sovereignty of the individual. You leave the EU, that means you can decentralise, remove some of the bureaucracy and the regulation, and we can have free trade with the rest of the world and create richer, aspirant individuals. But there is another part of the Tory mind which says actually it's about a repatriation of power and responsibility from Europe to the Parliament and that perhaps what we actually need to do is sort of knit the national community back together. And there's always that tension in Toryism between the national and the individual. And I, I'm not quite sure how they're going to resolve it. Uh, they're trying to resolve it through the personality of Boris Johnson, mm. I think. Uh, someone who, let's face it, is a Thatcherite, probably libertarian, the kind of man who'd said that he, on one occasion said he would want to give a, an amnesty to illegal immigrants, which is something that most of the people he's currently trying to appeal to would run a million miles away from. So that's his instinct. 
on the other hand, there's something about him that embodies those patrician Tory uh, values and symbols of the past of, of Churchill and the nation state. So right now they're trying to get around that tension through the personality of Boris. When they actually, if they win said election, and they then have to have a budget and everything, they have to make the choices that a government traditionally has to make, that might be harder because Boris would really like to cut taxes, but a lot of Tories uh, are hearing from their constituencies that the local hospitals under strain and social care is the big issue coming up mm. because of the aging population. So can we really afford those tax cuts? So I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is to that tension. But Tim, you know that, of course, historically speaking, the Tory party has always embodied that dichotomy and it's only ever been electorally successful when it's had a leader who was able to bridge the gulf successfully at Thatcher, Salisbury in the 19th century, Peel for a short time, Disraeli most successfully of all. It has always had mm. those things which are seen to be exclusive but in fact are really, I mm. think, congruent. The sovereignty of the individual and the power of parliament should work together in a Burkean sense so that the individual empowered feels a sense of obligation to take part in the civil nation and yes. in, in the life of the nation because he himself is powerful and well disposed and economically active. This patrician idea that by giving people something they'll feel much happier is, is so erosive to that sense of people taking part because they are themselves powerful. And I think actually Boris could do something extraordinary here if he doesn't allow himself to fall into tropes of essentially media class Tory thinking. The worst thing he could do as a Tory leader is to listen to what the media class criticises in Tory economic policy. If he sticks with his instincts, which I think are low tax, pro-free markets, pro-economy, but also accept that, as you say, with social care and the NHS, people do need a leg up from time to time. I think that is his route to success. But I think and actually that he's missed a great opportunity with the NHS to start talking about how we need to reform it. By all means, let's give it more money, but we need to make some wholesale changes and stop kidding ourselves mm. that we can solve this problem by chucking another 10 or 20 billion at it. Because if that's enough for a short time, give it five years and it will need another 40 billion. It's just, it's simply not sustainable. But instead you have the sight of these previously quite free marketeer MPs delivering these videos to camera that look a bit like a sort of hostage situation where they say, <laughs> oh, I love the NHS and it's all a bit, I'm not being mistreated, you know. Well, uh, I think this, <laughs> this, this is fear of what happened to uh, Mrs May with her social care strategy yes. that came out yes. in the 2017 election. They're essentially avoiding the issue in order not to make it an issue and then they can deal with it, it when is. and if they have a majority. And yet the issue here is also that Corbyn and, and uh, Johnson are both similarly deeply unpopular with, with the nation as a whole. Uh, polling as such. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's Johnson is much true. more popular. There's um, um Boris in, in terms of um, a Mail on Sunday poll last weekend showed a, a plus two rating. Yeah. Which is uh, one of the <laughs> which is <laughs> actually <laughs> if we compare if we compare it to incumbent Blair went into the 2001 election with a minus five rating. Well, yeah. It's yeah. very very unusual and for incumbent governments to have minus sixty or something. Minus sixty, the lowest of any. I mean, so they're, they're both ever. they're both mm. divisive, but it's sort of like comparing marmite to mustard gas. Right. Certainly, no. This is. <laughs> on the issues of trust and lying, he's basically symbolic, really, of the wider issue in Parliament of the underhand tactics that have been taking place. This is seen now as being an era when people don't trust politicians at all and don't trust party manifestos. Have they ever? This is the question. Mm. And the yeah, question really. is, but this has never been seen before to this degree, the, uh, the use of basically illegal tactics by J John Burko and others. And so the question is, what dangers are there for in the British public being exposed to the reality of what these people are willing to go to. Well, and yeah. how can we, can it be unseen? Once it's been seen, mm. can it be unseen or can it be forgotten? The great danger is that people, by withdrawing their vote, by not taking part in the democratic process, denude it of its legitimacy. If yes. 
and this is really the only thing that could really call into question the legitimacy of de representative democracy here, if people stopped voting. I mean, seriously, the turnout was down to 20%, for instance. At what point do we say, this is not a legitimate poll because so few people took part? But actually, I don't see any evidence of that going to happen. No, I think there is, a, in no. fact, the contrary evidence that people are so enraged by what they see as a failure of their political class that they're coming out to vote in greater numbers. Yes, I, I, my colleague Janet Daly insists that in 40 or 50 years' time, this will be regarded as a golden age of political engagement. Quite. Because people read things and they knew things and they mm, voted. Yeah. I, and I think people understand that uh, we've been discussing the crisis of legitimacy in the political class, but the way the political class sees it is there's a crisis of legitimacy in the electorate. And that's incredibly patronising. Uh, we would like to change the leaders. They would like to change us. Um, and I think people see through that. And I'm, yeah. I'm not sure how it resolves itself. But I think Boris is seen by many people as a Bill Clinton-style figure. Uh, he has his faults. I might not necessarily trust him personally. But because he wants to stay in power and he wants to win, he'll do what I want. Mm. And that's really what populism is. Mm. It's about electing people who the one thing they will do is what you want. And if he sticks to that message, I think he'll win. Well, finally, what do we think should happen now, ideally? What would you like to see happen to try to at least restore some of the faith and trust that we have in, in politics? And how can it happen when we have this current incumbent political class in place? Well, the answer is to, <laughs> to quote a phrase, to drain the swamp. No, uh, the answer is for Brexit to happen, because that's the first mm. step that needs to take place to begin to resolve the trust. Uh, luckily, we now have a, fantas a fantastic Speaker of the House of Commons who I believe will restore some trust that has been um, so tarnished in that, in that particular. But unfortunately, I think some of the broader damage there is done because what Brexit has revealed is so how many of these uh, long-standing um, institutions relied on conventions and essentially the personal discretion. So I, even though we have Lindsay Hoyle in, in place now, I, th I would expect further questions about what we might need to do to the role to make sure that that can never be allowed to happen again. Um, people will ask similar questions about whether we need some kind of written constitution because of the way that it's been so trampled upon That's by the great and the good. But I think the best way to begin to resolve the problem is to um, you know, elect the, the one party that is promising to abide by the referendum result and watch as the likes of Dominic Grieve, Anna Soubry and the many MPs who the, the old patrician snobs who believe that their own opinion of Brexit, because they are from that Tory patrician tradition, they believe that they have the right to overrule the hoi polloi. To watch those people be swept away and replaced by uh, decent people who understand the need for a, a functioning relationship between the government and, and the demos is so important. I would so worry, though, on that point of a written constitution. If this were the 1780s, I'd be all behind it. Yeah. But the problem right now is instituting a written constitution with the elites who would write it. Yeah. Would they ever allow a majority of the population to vote for anything ever again? I agree. We would embed the, the current uh, yeah. situation yeah. of politics. Yeah. There would be, there would be mm. no substantial change oh, that could I diverge from, from, from what yeah. exists I agree. today. I think it would be awful and we, we, we would find ourselves uh, conducting, living in a constant legal quagmire, endless battles that would go on and very little would ever be allowed to take place. I completely agree. This is one of the tragedies of Brexit, though, because people have decided to trample on these age-old but actually quite fragile uh, conventions for, for very short-term political gain. There's a great irony here that uh, I assume I speak for all of us that we are conservatives, but because of Brexit we find ourselves in a revolutionary situation of being asked to fix things. It's not the conservative nature to want to even try. Um, and I, the answer is not guillotines, 
uh, or the destruction of institutions. It is to actually get those institutions back on track and mm. to clean house and get yeah. them working so we return to traditional authority and just get back to simply being what they are supposed to be, which is an institution which uh, is, is part of the function of democracy yeah. and which does its job and which people have faith in. Because and tran they see it transcends day-to-day -day politics. Exactly, mm. yeah. yes. Well, that's yes. a topic for another conversation. I would just say on the written constitution, as a conservative, I think it's the best way to entrench the monarchy, to entrench oh. institutions <laughs> so that you can't actually change them on the will of a democratic majority in government, such as Tony Blair, who managed to do away with the Lord Chancellorship's key, op key authority and the um, House of Lords became neither fish nor fowl mm. and uh, the conservative viewpoint of actually want to entrench these institutions and you know avoid Burko doing uh, choosing amendments on his own and changing the course of history. Actually, you were worried that's about for another, <laughs> another time. I'd like to thank you all for, for coming today, Madeline Grant, Tim Stanley, Tom Howard and David Oldrod-Bolt and we shall see you next time on Counterculture. <laughs>